friends, welcome back to the Beyond Knowing podcast. Uh, in this episode, we've got some exciting content lined up for you. We have Dr. Ivo Pubalan, who is the principal of Colombo Theological Seminary, Sri Lanka. He will be sharing some insights on what is going on in Sri Lanka, but also from his recent sabbatical where he did some work on the book of Genesis. So I am excited for this and I trust that you will also benefit from what he has to share with us. Welcome Dr. Ivo to this episode of Beyond Knowing. I'm so glad to have you on this podcast. Um, as many of us already know, Sri Lanka is going through a very hard time, uh, the worst economic crisis in our history. Uh, and there has been a lot of things that have been coming out of that. Um, more positively, we've had an incredible people's movement that has uh, emerged that uh, has in, in many ways this movement has taken on an active citizenship role and is challenging the regime that has quite evidently been corrupt and uh, incompetent in many ways. And so this is a dire time of crisis and we are seeing uh, we are seeing the, the negative side of it, but also there seems to be a positive side of it. So let me ask you, Dr. Ivo, like you're on the ground, uh, having gone through every stage of this situation, uh, what do you feel is um, your kind of uh, experience at this particular moment? How are you feeling about the situation? Um, is there hope? Do you see hope? Uh, do you see? Do you feel like the people have hope? Uh, what is your sense of uh, sense of things right now in Sri Lanka? Well, uh, neither my gut response is disbelief. Uh, it's a real in a way to be in the situation we're in, because uh, countries do have uh, you know economic downturns and you know fluctuations. But I don't think we ever expected or even imagined what an, a complete economic crash would look like. Uh, I think you can now describe Sri Lanka as a failed state. Previously, we used to use that as a kind of a way of speaking about how bad things were. But uh, just a few days ago, uh, we were told by the prime minister, the new prime minister, that the coffers have less than a million dollars. So from a country that had $7 billion in foreign reserves two and a half years ago, we are down to less than a million dollars. And that's, uh, there is no way to compare what, what that looks like or feels like, uh, which has now, as, as everybody knows, has resulted in very severe shortages. Uh, most painful probably are in the area of medication, medicines, uh, and uh, of course, energy. So fuel for you know, just powering industry or just powering homes uh, and transport. And obviously, with transport crippled, it is affecting food distribution. And we are now facing uh, the prospect of, uh, you know, significant starvation or significant uh, malnutrition in the next few months. Uh, so it's, it's dire, if I might put it that way, it's dire in every sense of the word. Uh, 
and uh, everyone's kind of trying to figure out how to go into emergency mode uh, and and uh, you know be able to do something to help individuals and families survive so that's the kind of context i guess we are now facing i don't think we have answers the government doesn't have answers we've just got a new prime minister who's trying his best to figure out what solutions can be brought about but that's where we are uh, when you talk about hope uh, i think uh, as you said running under this this uh, level if you like or this reality of collapse and failed state is uh, another reality which is a very different reality it's uh, you use the word citizenship there is a new understanding and a new fresh perspective towards citizenship and action which we could talk about yeah and and that that is quite inspiring because i think uh you could you could attest to this cuz you have lived through some of the worst times in sri lanka um is, would you say this is like an unprecedented uh movement of the people that you probably wouldn't have witnessed in the last few uh decades i'm especially referring to people protesting and not just a particular group of people supporting a particular party but just a a across party lines just transcending party lines transcending even religious commitments and uh, all sorts of other kind of uh, groupings uh, we see that people have come out and uh, actively resisted the regime and calling for answers and change and such do you think that's something like you've never seen before and how is that kind of uh, how, does that sort of speak to you in any particular way yeah uh, definitely it's something we have never seen before uh, because we have been part of a of a political culture of 74 years so post independence it's 74 years we are coming into the 75th now Uh, in another sense you know history seems to happen in cycles so if you think we are in 2090 uh, 2022 in 1922 there would have been a similar ferment in sri lanka as years hundreds of years of colonial colonization uh, led to a time when sri lankans rose up and they did so as a united people across ethnic lines across class lines Uh, and all of the divides that were there we know our independence movement actually came up during the 20s and then then really blossomed in the 30s and 40s and led to emancipation from britain so in some ways what we are seeing is the is the second shot at independence the second shot at freedom because we didn't we squandered our freedom when we did get it in 1948 we completely squandered it for 74 years returning sri lanka to a place of I mean obviously we now can see where we returned to we got to a worse place than we were before 1948 in 1948 it is said that sri lanka had the second strongest economy in asia so uh, to have come to this in 74 years is a pretty big achievement what we are seeing as you say is the ability is this movement of sri lankans genuinely coming across coming together across ethnic lines religious lines and across class lines so we are seeing even the class divide which was kind of set in stone being overcome in this new movement and that is giving us so much hope so much of energy is coming out of that 
people are genuinely using the word system change. So they're moving towards a new definition of Sri Lankan, which uh, people like me who are from uh, an older generation, uh, we have to recognize that the energy, the center of the gravity of this movement is really in the next generation. And our task will be to find a way to encourage and support and serve that generation as they move this forward, hopefully successfully. Yeah. And and that uh, yeah that that's a good word that right there, it's also very intergenerational in many ways. Even even though maybe the older folk cannot be at the front lines, but just as you said, just to pass the baton on and encourage and um, yeah. uh, encourage them on to keep fighting the good fight has been very encouraging to see. Um, one of the other things I think that is. Uh, that needs to be explored, I think, in this situation is the church's response to what is going on, right? What kind of stance is the church taking? Uh, what kind of um, what kind of churches, what kind of uh, traditions are taking what kind of postures towards this has been interesting just from a theological perspective. Um, but for the most part, you could speak to this. Uh, it seems there has been somewhat of a unity in uh, in resisting uh, alongside the people, uh, in resisting corruption, and uh, in in resisting the, the the state in some ways. Uh, however, there, I this might be my personal opinion. Uh, there has not been much. Uh, much outcry or, or, or much of um, um, outspoken uh, there's not been much uh, said from the Protestant side as much as there have been from the Catholic side in terms of leaders in terms of church leaders in terms of um, in terms of you know, lead pastors or, or leaders of Christian organizations. Uh, do you think this is true? Maybe you can correct me on this and maybe share your thoughts on this. But what has been the general response of the church? And have you been happy with that? Um, have you seen some tension there? What is your, What are your thoughts on this? So when we say church, we can look at church from within, look at church from within church, or we can look at church from outside. So if you look at church from society's perspective, they are not particularly distinguishing between charismatics and Catholics. So they are, they are looking at what they see as the symbol of Christianity or the, or the representatives of Christianity. In that sense, I think the church has done a pretty marvelous job in terms of being there. Uh, in fact, now sometimes when people speak about religious leaders, just subconsciously, they might mention the Christian priest ahead of mentioning the Buddhist monk, simply because they have seen so much of uh, participation by the Christian clergy. A visible Christian presence has been very obvious in these struggles, uh, to the point that even the beating up, you know, the, the Christian priest getting beaten has been a national image, right? Uh, during the on the 9th of May, the couple of Christian clergy were getting beaten as well, along with some Christian clergy. So the, the nuns, the priests of the Anglican or the Catholic churches or the Methodist or Baptists are pretty easy to spot. Uh, and, uh, you know, seeing a group of nuns standing between the barricades and the crowd and the military 
uh, holding arms and uh, being a human barrier, silent human barrier. Those are sort of endearing memories, right? Uh, and, and enduring memories that people will have. So in that sense, yes, we've really, uh, uh, and then the cardinal speaking has always been seen as a Christian voice, as well as other church leaders have spoken. Now, from within the church, we can be more critical uh, because we see that some segments tend to isolate themselves, become more ghetto in their mentality. Uh, I'm also glad that this is happening at this time in history and not 40 years ago, because there's been a lot of theological work that has helped open the church to social engagement as a norm. And as a result, you, you see more uh, people who would typically 40 years ago have been completely opposed to any social engagement, also stepping up and being part of, you know, some kind of uh, response and uh, presence. So, yeah, so in that sense, I think we are thankful that the church hasn't completely failed, but we still have to be, you know, rousing the church and calling the church to be more intentionally engaged uh, especially those segments of the church that tend to shy away from these things. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's very fair that what what you what you just said there, and uh, I definitely see that. I definitely see what you just mentioned in, in terms of how the the society is viewing the church right now has been very positive, which is a good thing. Uh, but within the church itself. Um, it doesn't seem like um, that everyone is on board, but for the most part, it does seem that people are trying to engage uh, in uh, trying to engage the best way they can. Now, obviously, there are Christians who stumble over certain passages of scripture, like Romans 13, for instance, which you have um, even in even in CTS, uh, you have tried to. Uh, to bring clarity to those passages uh, as to not use that as a blanket kind of passage to address every sort of political situation. Um, and there are people who stumble over that, even even in my own church, when my dad had um, tried to get the people together and go to golfers and participate in the protests, uh, bringing a Christian witness there to in standing alongside uh, the marginalized and the disenfranchised in, for the sake of justice, uh, there was a gentleman who stood up in the middle of the church and basically said, Pastor, this is wrong. This is against Romans 13 uh, sort of sentiments, right? And uh, obviously that, that is shared by a lot of Pentecostal, um, uh, Pentecostal segments as well, right? Uh, it seems that the only time that political engagement is required is when it comes to religious freedom sometimes mm -hmm. uh, it seems so uh, how, how do you respond to that uh, do you have a quick word and then we can go on to some other things um, we don't want to spend too much time here but uh, do you have a, a quick response to that a quick response in two parts one is I would say uh, when we read the New Testament we come across Romans 13 but if we keep reading, it becomes cross revelation. So Romans 13 talks about the, the, the state as the servant of God. And Revelation 13 presents 40 years later, the state has become the enemy of God. And the response to that state uh, or that, that rulership is very different. So you are to resist the beast 
and not compromise with the beast, but you are to submit to the authorities in Romans 13. And we have to discern that in our different contexts. Is it a Romans 13 scenario or is it a Revelation 13 scenario? The second thing I would say is that when we talk about uh, the state, uh, we, are, we, we sometimes don't distinguish the fact that the Christians in the first century lived under an autocracy. But we know that we live in a democracy where we are the state. The citizen is the one who must make the decision as to who will be the servant of the state. And the public servants are servants of the state, just like the, the, in, a, in, in the Roman situation, the autocracy meant that the empire and the emperor uh, made the decisions. But here the decisions are made in a democracy by those of us who cast a vote. And so it is we who must take responsibility to appoint the public servant and remove the public servant, because otherwise we are not doing good governance. When we have been given that responsibility. But very often Christians may go and cast a vote, but not understand that that vote means that you are supposed to take responsibility for the state. And therefore you have to appoint and remove those who are going to be the public servant. Uh, now, I just want to move over to just the last thing on this subject of talking about the crisis in Sri Lanka is something that I've been thinking about. Uh, when you look at America and when we look at the Me Too movement, uh, we see that the Me Too movement inspired the Church Too movement. Uh, so in, in one sense, when the Church had failed to address the moral concerns that were urgent and that were important, but the church had other interests and didn't do so. We saw that lots of people within the church were inspired by a secular accountability movement. And, and so we saw the hashtag turn from me too, hashtag me too to hashtag church too. Now, what I've been thinking about in the last few days is what if uh, the Gota go home hashtag turns into a church go home uh, hashtag if the church doesn't at the same time hold its leaders to account Spe specifically uh, referring to those same uh, systemic issues within certain uh, church structures we see in Sri Lanka, right? Uh, and so if, if with that active citizenship, with the social media kind of becoming an important place to exercise uh, exercise agency and call out those in power, very quickly we can see this uh, turning to other institutions. No one is above accountability, right? Uh, when, when a secularization takes over, we can see that happening. And so how how much longer can certain ministries or uh, communities and pastors and all can kind of go below the radar in a sense? Uh, so uh, do you have anything to speak to that? Uh, do you I, sense that? Being I appreciate in what you're bringing up. That's very interesting because I've had the same thought. I've seen the same sentiment growing now. In fact, I've had some conversations where people have asked that question. What about church? Isn't church running the same way like, uh, you know, the country has been running. So I think you're right that uh, this movement is conscientizing the church membership now. So it's kind of very, it's kind of ironically a reverse. Uh, and so these ideas of justice and fair play and accountability and transparency are now pressing into the church from outside. And there is going to be 
uh, a need for the church to change because otherwise there will be that sense of discord, discordant, you know, the discordant note for people who are sensitive and aware of what's happening in society when they walk into the church. It's going to sit well. See, because always culture shapes the church, uh, although we like to think the church is shaping culture, but culture has pressed in and we become unaware that we are living by the same cultural values. You know, if you just take the the big job gets the big position and the big perks uh, and, you know, you, you get to move around like, but now the, the politicians uh, more recently, it was so funny to see them come in little marutis for the meeting to show off that they have, uh, they don't have big vehicles and they, you know, they're sharing a vehicle for two maruti like too much for me to take, right? But that's going to come back to the church where, you know, the senior leadership sometimes feels that they have to have that larger vehicle and look far, far more sort of prosperous than others. So, yes, I think that you're, you're on to something very important there. Uh, and will the church uh, adapt? Will the church be changed by that? Or will it become irrelevant? It can soon seem like an irrelevant, uh, you know, entity. No, I, I think so, because I think, um, especially with what I'm calling a kind of a rapid secularization uh, in terms of even the resistance, the resistance movement, whether that's Gota, Gogama, or the, the youth-led movement, especially because it is not driven by religious sentiments or traditional political ideologies. It's, it's centered on secular kind of ideologies that doesn't necessarily need religion to sustain it in a way. So there is a sort of, um, I mean, it's a good thing, but in another sense, it can quickly presume that it can function without all these other, uh, you know, kind of foundational things like like religion as a, as a mode of social cohesion and a, as a moral compass. Um, and so at that point, then religion is also becomes uh, a subject of scrutiny and and uh, look and so much so that it can be like what if religion is the reason we are divided what if religion is the reason there is class divide what if the religion is the reason there is authoritarianism right these pastors and this and so in that sense i think yeah like you're saying uh, christians need to become more aware of these changes that are happening uh, uh, that are happening not just in the immediate sense, but I think there's going to have a chain reaction uh, looking forward. Um, with that, I think it's a good way to segue into talking about the book of Genesis um, and talking about uh, your work, or what you, you had some time to reflect and research and uh, develop some material for uh, the Sri Lankan context, especially um, within, I think, between uh, the, the chapters one to three, um, if I'm not mistaken, and specifically looking at the doctrine of uh, the human person, or of humanity. Uh, and I think this is a good place for us to talk about um, some of the things that have happened in Sri Lanka uh, in terms of scandals and controversies. Um, uh, but I, I want to just in general ask you how 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 your time in the book of Genesis and your reflection, how has that played into 
your ministerial context in Sri Lanka and uh, what are some insights that you can maybe share with us? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it was a time of preparing to write a couple of books on Genesis 1 and the portion, as you said, and the other for theological students and pastors to be able to have an access to the book. It's been much, a lot of fun for me to go back and work on that. Uh, but one thing I would like to talk about is uh, sort of the heightened sense of this idea of what Genesis has to say about humanity. Uh, because I think as we have been talking over the last few years about the new movements, uh, which are heretical in the, in, the, in the current heresies, often fly under the radar because uh, the tools we have for detecting heresies have to do with uh, the old heresies, like, you know, things to do with the nature of Christ or the nature of God and so on. And very often we find the heresy is well planted within the Orthodox Church, because when we examine it, we find that it has very little to uh, challenge the doctrine of God or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or the end times. Uh, and I think we've realized that the, the weakness has been in the area of the doctrine of humanity. And I just went back and looked at the Nicene Creed, for example. There's nothing to say about the doctrine of humanity. It just deals with the nature of God, Christ, Holy Spirit, the second coming, uh, and salvation, atonement, and so on. But it has very little, to say, almost nothing to say about what a human person is. And all these centuries, that has never been a major challenge. It never forced the church to have to come up with uh, some thinking. But then looking at Genesis, just taking Genesis 1 and 2 uh, and asking as an entry to the scriptures and an entry to Jewish theology, if you like, what do we have in Genesis 1 and 2? Genesis 1, uh, the whole thing is all about God. So Elohim turns up 35 times in that first section of the book. But very interestingly, when you go to the second, which sometimes has been called the second creation story, has become sort of controversial, uh, it's actually the author you know, taking a different perspective on creation, but he wants to now talk about humanity. And so 16 times he will mention man and mention the Lord God only 11 times. So even in that narrative, uh, you know, the technique, he's indicating to the reader that in that second section, he's talking about the second big subject of the Bible, which is humanity. Because it's God and humanity and this golden thread of redemption that runs through the Bible. Uh, so the Bible has a lot to say about humanity. It's just that we have not been too interested in trying to hear what it is saying. Because basically our theology has been that hum humanity has sinned and we start there. Humanity is all about sinful humanity. Because that's the way we approach our doctrines and our theology as Christians. But the biblical theology actually has something to say about humanity, which we have to stop and listen before we get to sin. And so that has been very helpful for me to reflect about, you know, how God has made us in, in his image. And that little pause in Genesis 1, how God created humanity and the nature of humanity reflected there. So, yeah. I think that's, that's very interesting that you say that, um, especially because, like you said, most of theology, at least in the West, has been very concerned which is some, some somewhat our inheritance, very concerned with soteriology, right, with salvation, uh, in a sense, and uh, and so the story begins with the fall, in, in pretty much, 
and then uh, from there we kind of do theology uh, but that the the the, the center uh, the, the the beginning of or the doctrine of creation is often missed out or overlooked or underemphasized and that has huge implications uh, like you said so uh, do you see any particular uh, import for our situation in sri lanka from from these reflections that you've had a specific i think you've you've identified uh, three things human identity human responsibility and human vulnerability as uh, as you've explored these passages uh, and i think also it's very interesting that you didn't just focused on human origins but you're thinking about uh, more than that you're thinking about what genesis is trying to say about the human uh, the, the human subject right and uh, yeah if you can elaborate on that doctor i so i i, uh, I as i thought about it when someone uh, when a church invited me to preach last month in april i suggested that we do the sermon on this and they were very happy to do it because it it helped them also in terms of dealing with some of the challenges that they have they have been facing as a church uh, and i i felt very strongly that we have to do a lot more work now in building up the church's theology of humanity you know uh, we have to go back to scripture and explain who the human person is in god's standing uh, how god has made us and what the incarnation therefore suggests about humanity i mean for the word to become flesh uh, that must mean something uh, we as you say we start with soteriology we are starting with you know god loves us and we have all fallen up, fallen into sin and so on but we don't focus enough on this value of human life that is uh, sort of further demonstrated in the incarnation that the son of god should become human is itself tremendous so human identity i think is something that we need to help so if we think of all the conflicts and challenges and lots of the issues that are sweeping the globe today have to do with human identity the human person i think the whole concept of personhood is what's wide open now when you talk about gender issues sexuality race think of all the burning issues it has to do with personhood and we haven't developed a robust enough theology of personhood we need to do that uh, then of course we move into chapter 2 and there is a big emphasis on human responsibility you know just the description of how god positioned that man in his special garden and what he gave as instructions for that man uh, is very instructive for us that it's trying to teach us about humanity's responsibility now in our world in our modern world the subject is human rights uh, we are completely you know just completely obsessed if you like with human rights but you don't hear much conversation about human responsibility but the bible seems to actually flip it and says you know shows that primarily we should be defined by responsibility not rights the rights have meaning only if there is a you know a a sense of responsibility so god is god is dealing with the human being by calling him to responsibility and within that there is this picture of pleasure and delights and you know provision and abundance and flourishing all that is happening within the context of responsibility yeah. so yeah and challenges individualism uh, individualism as well i think yeah 
Yeah, and and about human vulnerability, what, what was something so, that? So I, I I thought of a little. I mean, we are very familiar with chapter three, but you know what? All these early chapters of Genesis are more paradigmatic. You know, in terms of how the people of Israel had to understand, but for the challenges, who they were and how they were to be God's people. And so, what was chapter three supposed to function as? So showing us that. You know there is a vulnerability, and then the way the story is presented shows our vulnerability to certain certain uh, tendencies. One is to distort God's word, and the other is to aspire to God's status. Uh, and I think those are sort of principle principles that we can see running through. And perhaps we need to, as a church, recognize that we are vulnerable to those things all the time. You know, the distortion of God's word is the classic move of the enemy. And the desire for God's status is the classic position of the human heart. So perhaps those things have to be woven into our understanding of who we are. And I think when you look at the church, a lot of the times when the church has fallen, church has got uh, corrupted, it's in these areas of distorting God's word and aspiring to God, God, God-like status. As as Dr. Ivor said, these are the these are the areas we need to be thinking about in Sri Lanka at the moment. Uh, is these anthropological concerns uh, in regards to the human person and how how does God uh, relate to that? Um, and another thing, the final thing I just wanted to talk to you about is another interesting aspect of your research was uh, about the the about the patriarchal narratives of how Genesis shapes. Uh, the stories of Abraham and Jacob, um, and how you you've you mentioned to me that you found something interesting in in that regard. If you want to share some, maybe a little sneak peek into that. Sneak preview. <laughs> well, this this has to be also view, uh, taken up by Genesis scholars to you know to really uh, work work on it. But it was a it was a, an interesting kind of breakthrough that I felt was helpful. We think of the patriarchal narratives, usually we think of chapter 12 to chapter 50 of Genesis as the patriarchal narratives, as different primeval narratives. Uh, but the patriarchal narrative strictly is Genesis 12 to chapter 36, because they are the chapters that talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, of course, 37 onwards is a sort of a short story or a novella about Joseph. Uh, and when you look at those patriarchal narratives, they're kind of disproportionate. You have three patriarchs, but it's very obvious that the author is focusing on Abraham and Jacob and gives a little attention to Isaac. Uh, so the question is, why is he, is he doing that? Excessively talking about Abraham and Jacob, and are those narratives, two narrative cycles, uh, just uh, similar collections of stories about the two patriarchs, or do they have different intentions, or they do, do they have specific intentions? So working backwards from the audience, the readership of Genesis, assumed, as we can rightly assume, that they were those who came out of Egypt under Moses and are now traveling towards the promised land. If we take the the traditional view of Genesis, if they are the ones who are now going to have to move into a promised land and become a new geopolitical entity, uh, then you can imagine that they have two big issues. One is they're a confederation of tribes. Uh, and there is going to be the issue of politics. How will they relate to one another? Uh, the second is the issue of identity again. 
they, they are in a world of advanced empires and nations. How will they identify themselves? Who are they? 400 years as slaves in Egypt. They have no idea of, of their identity. So it seems that the author is actually instructing them, providing them sort of patriarchal narratives that will help shape their identity and their politics. So if you look at the Abraham stories, it tells us stories about him and his children and his household and wives, wives and so on. But actually the stories are shaped to show Abraham as a, as a king among kingdoms. In king, among, you know, he is the one who you know, uh, can come out of Mesopotamia, the advanced civilization, go to Egypt and you know, stand up against Pharaoh. He's the one who overcomes the coalition of kings that had just uh, you know, devastated uh, parts of southern Canaan. Uh, and he can capture Lot back by routing, you know, uh, coalition of kings. And he can then stand up to the king of Sodom when he returns. He's the one who uh, is seen as a equal by the king of the Philistines, Abimelech. Uh, and in fact, Abimelech fears Abraham. He's the one who is the progenitor of the Midianites and the progenitor of the Ishmaelites. And from his uh, family line comes the Moabites and the Ammonites. Uh, and, you know, all along, Abraham is presented as a great king figure, kind of a sovereign, not a sovereign, a kind of a royal figure. And I think that is to help Israel know their identity as they go into the promised land. Among the nations and kingdoms of the time, Israel is a kingdom whose father figure was a king, was a great king. But then when you look at the Jacob story, it's very little about kingdoms. It's all about his fight with his brothers. Uh, how he handled his uncle. Uh, it's all family-oriented. How Jacob uh, managed in the conflict within a family. His wives are fighting each other. There's all these family conflicts and his children are going to cause him many problems and they are not getting on with each other and so on. Uh, and so a lot of family stories of Jacob, but intended to show how Jacob then comes through to a place of peace, he makes peace with his brother. His children are finally instructed to care for each other. Uh, and at the end of the story, Jacob's family has come to a place of peace. They have learned to get on with each other. So I think the Jacob narratives are helping Israel figure out its internal politics. And the Abraham narratives is helping Israel figure out its external identity. So, so there is something there I think that could be helpful. And by my dad, so that helps us to understand the Isaac narrative. The Isaac narratives are bad. There is very little. Uh, but the two big chapters is chapter 24 and chapter 26. It shows Isaac in the family setting, finding a wife for Isaac. Chapter 26 shows Isaac the great king, where King Abimelech fears him and he is you know, the terror of, the fear of Isaac falls on everybody as he travels. So Isaac sort of brings together both you know, the, the family and the, the, the uh, identity. I see. Wow. Yeah. That's very interesting. I think, uh, um, yeah, it's worth people, other people also taking this on and kind of maybe students who are interested in this kind of area would be very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ivo, for your time. We've had Hi. a great conversation, I believe. Yeah, uh, as always, yes, yes, I, I do miss our conversations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time despite 
uh, all the difficulties that you're facing in Sri Lanka, especially with regular power cuts and such, uh, and giving uh, giving us some of your time. So thank you, and uh, all the best with the work that you're going to be doing, especially with uh, Genesis. We're looking forward to all of that. Thank you. All the best with your research. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Knowing. You can find us under Beyond Knowing Podcast on all social media and streaming platforms. Don't forget to like and subscribe. If you would like to send in questions or feedback, email us at beyondknowingpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.